0: Thank you, Anthony. I thought I'd make him do the work of that since he was, you know, I was like, where's he going? I need that thing. All right, so open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We are in the middle of a series in Romans, and today we're going to be pushing all of our discussion to the breakout rooms after we have our meeting in here. So um, I'm going to ask you guys to really tune in this morning into some thick stuff at Romans chapter 3, looking at verses 1 to 20 today, and... We have been talking about two main things. I'm praying for, and I hope you're praying for the same things as well, um, as we walk through Romans. And the first thing I'm praying for is for unity in our youth group. Um, I talked about, about this last week. I said, if if we have a, if we are not unified, it's not that we have a um, unity problem. We have a gospel problem. And Paul was writing the book of Romans to hopefully unify the Jews and the Gentiles. And so as we read as we read Romans, uh, my hope is that it would. Start the process in your own minds and hearts about what unity means, what it looks like, um, how it should look in a youth group like ours. And we talked last week about how we know the gospel is at work when the friendships don't make a lot of sense. We talked about how um, there was some, someone I mentioned to you guys last week about uh, the graduated last year who was always reaching out to people that were unlike her. And if you think about your friendships, my friendships, your friendships, your friendships, most of the time, they're based on some pretty surface-level things. We're on the same team. We, we dress similar. We have similar sense of humor. We have uh, similar tastes in music. We have just similar styles. And we, we find commonality with these things, and we end up, end up being friends with these people over these very superficial, surface-level things. And so one way that you know the Gospels at work in a place is when the friendships don't make a whole lot of sense when there are people reaching out to other people that are unlike them. They don't have that much in common externally, but they have the most important thing in common, which is Jesus Christ. We also talked about how we're praying for a spiritual breakthrough to happen um, in this ministry. Just spiritual breakthrough happening where um, unbelievers are becoming believers. Unbelievers are crossing over from death to life but also, the believers are crossing over from death to life as they begin to understand the gospel and the many ways in which it impacts their life. Um, I talked to you guys last week about how many of us, if, I were, if, you're, a church, if, you're, if you're a lifelong churchgoer, you're probably going to say that, yeah, if, if I gave you the grace test or if I said to you, um, is salvation based on grace or is it based on works, you could give me the right answer. You, you'd say, well, yeah, it's based on grace. I can't earn salvation, but the way this works out in your life is most of us, we, we, we ascribe to a salvation by grace, but we live out a salvation by works, and so this morning, I want to be just unpacking one way that happens uh, for us, and I'm going to share just part of my own personal story here at the end of today's passage, so I want you just to hear um, the ways in which God begins to peel the layers of my own self-righteousness away. Um, throughout my life. And this will be a continual process for you and for all of us. Um, You will spend the rest of your life trying to understand how grace applies to your life. You'll you'll understand it intellectually. Like you'll get it in your mind. Like, yeah, yeah, I know salvation is based on grace. But the rest of your life, your spiritual growth, your sanctification, the rest of your entire life is going to be about um, really letting that truth sink into your heart and your soul. And so hopefully, as we walk through Romans, um, the stone will just drop and send ripple effects out into your life um, as you begin to understand the gospel and its many implications for your life. So quick review. Uh, We looked at Romans chapter 1 a few weeks ago. This was Paul talking about the gospel for the pagan. That's reference to the Gentiles. I know we think pagan, we think of it as a real negative um, term, you know, you bunch of pagans, but this is actually a, a, a literal biblical term. And uh, so Paul um, refers to the Gentiles in this way um, in his writings, and he is referring to the Gentiles in Romans chapter 1, just showing how um, Romans 1 is written to the the kind of person that you think of. When you think of someone who's just totally lost apart from God, they want nothing to do with God. This was Romans 1. Then Romans 2 hits, and Romans 2 is written to the Jew. This is written to people who are raised in a faith. They're raised in a religious household. And um, and so the Romans uh, 2 was written for the Jew, the religious, and the proud. And this is why I love Romans, because Romans speaks to both kinds of people. Most of us think Romans is like this graduate level theology that's just for the really, really mature Christians to go a little bit deeper in their faith. But that's not what it's for. It's for both kinds of people. It's for the self-righteous churchgoer who thinks they have it all together, but it's also for the um, person who we call a pagan or total sinner who wants nothing to do with God whatsoever. It's for both kinds of people. So wherever you find yourself uh, today, my hope is that um, this series will will keep on speaking to you. And the big idea Paul is trying to put forth to us in Romans chapter 1 and 2 is that the Jews and the Gentiles are both in the same boat. They're in the same place when it comes to their need for Jesus. And so last week we um, left off in chapter 2 having a really awkward discussion because Paul leaves off Romans 2 talking about uh, circumcision. And so this is where we pick up in in Romans chapter 3. If you weren't here last week, you can listen to it online um, if you want to catch up. But Romans chapter 3, looking at verse 1. And Paul is, uh, is addressing still the Jew here. He says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So as I read that, how many of you guys understand what Paul just said? Raise your hand. Clearly. Very difficult to understand Paul's language, isn't it? Um, you can read Paul over and over and go, I, I think I got, and I have no idea what he just said, right? So we're going to unpack this just a little bit by a little bit. And I want to modernize the conversation a, a little bit and let you see how this might play out if he was writing to us today um, as Paul writes this. So remember, at the end of chapter 2, he ends by discussing uh, circumcision. The Jews were given by God this covenant, which is a relationship based on a promise. They're given this covenant between them and God as a people. They're also given the law. They're given circumcision as a sign of that covenant. And, um, but for the Jews, all these things became a source of pride for them. It, it became a source of, hey, we're the Jews, we're special, and we're God's chosen people. And so at the end of chapter 2... Paul says that circumcision is meant to be an outward symbol of an inward reality. That's the point of it. It shouldn't make you special because you have this sign of the covenant given to you by God. In the same way, um, this ring is meant to be an outward symbol of an internal reality. This ring means nothing if I don't love her, which is Courtney. It's Courtney. There she is over there. Happy Valentine's Day, by the way. Is it the first time I've said that to you this morning? I think it is. Yeah. But I want to do it in front of the audience, you know, so that's why I did that. Um, I, w- I was just out of it this morning. I was not thinking straight. I don't need a clap for that. But if if I don't love her, this this ring doesn't mean a thing. It just means whatever amount it costs, right? That's all it means. And if I don't love her, it doesn't mean anything. So in the same way, um, the circumcision was meant to be an outward symbol of an internal reality. And if you don't have the internal reality, which is a relationship with God, love for God, passion for God, then the external symbol means nothing to us or to the Jews. So throughout Romans, Paul is uh, really good at thinking through their questions and what questions they might be raising. So the reason why Romans is confusing is because Paul is writing it as a dialogue. So the questions that he's raising in the book are questions that he's anticipating that they have. So it's not like Paul is um, being schizophrenic and talking to himself. He's actually thinking of questions that they might have and writing those questions out and then responding to those questions accordingly. And this is where Paul is brilliant because he is so good at knowing his audience, knowing what questions they're going to have. And this is a lesson to us because you and I need to know the questions and the concerns of the people that we're trying to minister to. We have to know our audience, so Paul knows his audience very, very well. Now, this um, conversation might not just be Paul talking to the Jewish people, but think about where Paul came from. Paul came from a, um, a line of Pharisees. He came from, uh, he himself was a Pharisee as a Jew. So Paul is not just talking to the Jews. Paul might also be, you might, this might be a dialogue between Paul the Christian and Paul the Pharisee. Paul might be talking to his former self as he writes these words. So I want to modernize this passage for you very quickly so you can see what he's really getting at. This is Romans 3, 1 to 8, modernized. So the first question Paul is asking, Paul, or the question he's in, thinking that they're asking him, The question that Jews might have for him is, Paul, are you saying there's no advantage to biblical religion? Meaning, are you saying there's no advantage to being Jewish and having the law and having a sign of that covenant that God's given to us? Is that what you're saying, Paul? And Paul would answer to them this answer. He'd say, no, I'm not saying that. There's great value in having and knowing the words of God. He's saying there's great value in that God chose you as his people. But the problem is you guys are getting that all wrong as to why God did that and the implications of why God did this for you. Paul is saying that um, this law and this covenant is not given to you to make you secure, and just because you have this doesn't make you saved. It makes you responsible. It makes you responsible as a people of God to be good stewards of what God's given to you and to be a blessing and a bearer of the gospel message to the rest of the world. This is what Paul is trying to communicate in this part of the passage. How does this apply to us today? There is great value in being raised in a Christian home, being taught the things of God at an early age. There's great value in being a part of the church. But you and I can never, look at me, you you and I can never think that those privileges make you a Christian. Not until you've surrendered. Not until you have placed faith in Jesus Christ, his work for you on the cross. And so in the same way that the Jews were were finding their identity and their security in the fact that they were God's chosen people for this covenant, um, Paul is saying, no, this doesn't make you secure. It makes you responsible. It makes you responsible to the rest of the world, and you're responsible for the knowledge that you have. And so the question becomes, what are you going to do with what God's given you? The next question Paul raises, he's in thinking that they're asking him, he says, yes, but those words have failed, haven't they? Because so many haven't believed the gospel of righteousness revealed in God's son, Jesus. And what's happened to the promises? He's saying that in spite of God's direct revelation to the Jews, many Jews didn't believe. Just let that sink in for a little bit. That even today, that... um. If someone is raised in a Jewish home, that they don't believe in Jesus Christ, that he's truly the Son of God, going all the way back throughout history, that even God's chosen people that he chose to reveal himself to in such a specific way, that even many of those people didn't believe and put their faith and trust in him. So here's how Paul answers this question. He says, despite his people's failure to believe, God's promises to save are advancing. Our faithlessness only reveals how committed God is to his truth. So people always ask this question. What about those who never hear? But it's astounding to me when you think about the Jews that were given God's special revelation that many of them never believed either. And I've always said this to you in here, that this shows that man doesn't have just an information problem. Man doesn't have just a mind problem intellectual problem. He has a heart problem. He doesn't want to believe. Even the people that God has given all this information and knowledge to, many have rejected him and said, no, we we want nothing to do with with you, God, with you, Jesus. And so it's never just an information issue. It's always a heart issue. Next question Paul raises is, but if unrighteousness is, is necessary for God's righteousness to be seen, how is it fair for him to judge us? Do you hear what question he's asking here? He's, he's saying the Jews are probably asking the question now, um, if our sin, if if us sinning and us being unrighteous just points to the righteousness of God, then, then how can God judge us for sin? Because we're just pointing out how great he is by our sin. And we'll follow this uh, logic here in a moment as well. And then Paul answers this question by saying, On that basis, God would not judge anyone in the world. And we all agree that God should judge. So what he's saying is, um, if if you're saying God can't judge me because my sin just shows off his glory more, so how can God judge me? Well, Paul's saying, well, that means God can't judge the Gentiles either. And we all agree he should judge wickedness and and evil. So we can't say that about God. Then he goes on to further this argument, and he says the, the Jews ask again, well, if my sin makes God look better, does that mean I should sin more so his glory is more clearly seen? And Paul, summary of his response, says, I've been accused of thinking this, and I certainly don't. And saying you're sinning so that God will love you is an attitude absolutely worthy of judgment. So this would be like a modern dialogue of what Paul is trying, the conversation he's trying to create in this part of Romans to let them see what, what he's trying to say about the gospel. So do you understand what he's saying? Because this is not an argument that most of us would use, but there's one that I want to get to that is kind of like this, that we use in our culture today, and it's kind of subtle. But, but Paul is, um, just imagine using this logic today with your parents. So the Jews are basically saying, okay, Paul, so if God is perfect we're not perfect, then doesn't it make more sense? Like, if, if I sin and I'm forgiven, and that shows off God's glory more, then shouldn't I just sin, continue in, in sin? Doesn't that bring God more glory? And Paul, in Romans 3, he, he echoes this again in Romans 6. We'll see it again in Romans 6. But in Romans 3, he says, no, like, you, you can't think that way. Like, imagine saying this to your parents. Like, what if you lie to your parents, your parents catch you in a lie? And they're like, why did you lie? And you're like, I'm just trying to bring more glory to Jesus. That's not gonna fly. That's not gonna work. That's that's some warped logic going on there, right? And this is what Paul's trying to address with the, the Jewish people. Now I know this sounds like a crazy, like none of us would ever think that way, but here's a way in which I think we're guilty of this same kind of thinking, and we don't even realize it. So I want to present to you a scenario. What if I told you that tonight at 7 p.m. here at the Outback, we have invited a man to tell his story about how he was in the mafia, Uh, he murdered countless people, he smuggled drugs across the border, he's been with prostitutes, and then Jesus finally saved him. And now he's serving time in jail, but he's doing jail ministry from the inside, And he was granted a special release to come here to the Outback tonight to share his story. How many of you guys are coming to hear that story? Raise your hand. You know, most of you probably be like, I'll make time for that. That sounds pretty amazing. I want to hear that story. But then what if I said to you, all right, so bad news. I just got a phone call from that guy. Well, not that guy. He's in prison. But that guy's people, his people. And he had to cancel but do not fear, I found someone to take his place. And it's another guy with a, an incredible story. And this guy prayed a prayer of salvation when he was five, lived a pretty moral life all the way through junior high and high school, at least by external standards. But then in the middle of college, he realized he had been judgmental, condemning, self-righteous towards other people. And one day, Jesus just convicted him and got a hold of his heart, and now he realized that he was just as lost as the people that he was condemning. And tonight, he's going to be here in the outback sharing his story here at 7 o'clock. You guys going to come to that? Raise your hand. I don't see as many hands. Right? So, I want you to catch how we do this in in our church world today, because... How do we talk about these two kinds of testimonies in the church? The first testimony, we label it what? Cool, powerful. The second testimony, we label it what? Boring. Right? We call it boring. Now, how many of you guys, raise your hand, have ever thought you have a boring testimony? Raise your hand. I have. Yeah, that's not that exciting. I was never in the mafia. I mean, I was never that bad. And you think to yourself, I've got a boring testimony. And I hope that as we go through Romans, especially, that you will begin to understand there's no such thing as a boring testimony. There's no such thing. Like, just wipe that word out of your vocabulary. There's no such thing as a boring testimony. Because when you say that, it's just as exciting when someone comes to the end of their self-righteousness and they collapse into the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. And it's just as exciting when someone does that as it is when someone is snatched out of the mafia, prostitution, drugs. I know we don't think of it like this, but in God's eyes, it is just as exciting. I mean, think of who, who is Jesus always yelling at? The Pharisees. Do you think of a Pharisee just went to Christ and wept at his feet in the way that woman did and just collapsed into his grace and his mercy and said, I've been putting my faith and my trust in my own self-righteousness and I need you, Jesus, as my Savior? Do you think Jesus would have been overjoyed by that salvation as much, if not more, as he was the woman at the well? So we can't label testimonies one powerful, one boring. I know earthly, our earthly minds is how we think, but we cannot, from an eternal perspective, think of things in this way. I want to show you how this ties into the passage now because the Jews were saying, hey, if our our sin shows off God's holiness, then why don't we just sin more and bring God more glory? And when you and I as believers... When we elevate one testimony over another, we do the exact same thing. Because we are basically saying that the person who went off the deep end into sin, we are indirectly stating that that testimony brings God more glory because that person did more external sins. Do you you get what I'm saying? This is how we... I think fall into a similar trap as what the Jews fall into. I think we also do it whenever we are tempted to go off and live the crazy life. Like, so many of you guys are going to leave this this place in a couple of years. You're going to graduate from high school and go off to college. Um, I actually uh, talked to a couple of parents up in the main building this morning. I haven't seen their daughter in four years. But their daughter struggled big time with the external kinds of sins and I just said, hey, how's your daughter doing? How's she doing now? And they were like, man, it's been really cool. She's plugged into a church. She has come back to Christ. And, um, and you could just see when this girl was in high school here that she was just itching to get out of this place. Like, it was just like, I got to get out of here. I got to find myself. I got to, um, I'm not into this Christian thing. This is how she would act and talk. And she just, and, and I know that in your mind, some of you are thinking the same way. You're like, you know what, if I'm really going to, if I'm really going to embrace the gospel, I've got to experience the other side of life. And so even in your own minds right now, you think to yourself that you're going to bring more glory to God if you go off into sin than if you just have a boring testimony. And it's a big, fat lie. It's a big, fat lie. And I know we're all tempted to think this way because sometimes, it's not just our temptation towards sin. Sometimes you just want street cred, right? Like you just want to be able to look at other people and say, yeah, yeah, you know, I've experienced the other side of life. And, you know, I've, and, yeah, I've lived to tell about it. And, yeah, Jesus is legit. And, and you feel like it would maybe give you more passion if you'd experienced the other side of life. Maybe life is kind of boring as a Christian. You just think, you know what, I haven't really explored the other part of life. Maybe I should try that and, and try it out and see. But this is a lie. And, it, and what's underneath of that lie is this idea that my life will bring more glory to God if I experience all kinds of external sins. And what I would say to you is the problem isn't that. The problem is you don't really see your self-righteousness as real sin. We just don't. Like, like you and I, we don't see pride and arrogance and lack of humility and self-righteousness. We just don't see that as that big of a deal. And so there's one thing I want to get through to you this morning. It's this idea that you need to see that as a huge deal. And you need to see that kind of sin as what put Jesus on the cross in the same way that all of our external fleshly sins put Christ on the cross. You've got to see your sin as weighty, whether it's internal or external. Look down at verse 9. Paul writes, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In verse 9, he talks about this concept of everyone's under sin. It's a legal term. How many of you guys own a passport? Raise your hand. My passport says, I'm a citizen of the United States. It shows my legal citizenship on that passport. And in the same way, you and I all have a spiritual passport. And it is stamped either under sin or under grace. Before you come to know Christ, it is stamped under sin. You're a citizen of sin. Sin is reigning over you. It is the power that consumes you. Once you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, your passport is stamped under grace. You still struggle with sins, for sure, but sin no longer has this power and reign over you like it once did. The power and reign of sin has been broken in your life. And so um, I want to just give you a picture of what this might look like for when Paul talks about um, that all of us are in the same boat, that all of us are in the same place when it comes to sin. Um, Do we have any swimmers in the room here? Raise your hand if you're a swimmer. All right, a handful of you. Um, I can never swim more than a lap without, like, having to take a break. So I was never good at swimming in that regard. But I want to give you a picture of what if three swimmers, all different abilities, set out from Hawaii to swim to California? That was your job. We're going to make you swim from Hawaii to California. And one person can't swim at all. One person is, like, on the, sw- the belt and swim team. And one person is a world-class championship swimmer. Now, the first one goes off into the beach, and, like, as soon as it's over their head, they're drowning. They're dead, right? It's a sad story, I know. Um, I didn't make that clear, did I? It's going to be sad. There's going to be three deaths. Um, And then the second person swims out maybe, like, a few hundred yards because they're a Belton varsity swimmer. And they sink to the bottom as well. And then um, the third person, this is like, um, what's the guy? Phelps? Yeah. This is like Michael Phelps. And he's like trying out all of his different strokes. Like he's, he's like just being arrogant and doing the butterfly, doing everything like backstroke. For like several miles he goes. He's in shape. He's a championship swimmer. Eventually what happens to him? A shark eats him, yes, no, he dies, right? So every single person is in the exact same situation, here's what I want to communicate to you. If you've been raised in the church like I was, like many of you have, we're like that maybe the varsity swimmer, maybe like the world champion swimmer, like everything looks good for a while, but eventually... Your facade runs out. Your self-righteousness runs out. Like, you are nothing apart from Christ. We're all in the the exact same boat when it comes to um, where we are before Christ. We're condemned apart from Christ. There are no – listen to me, listen to me. There are no degrees of lostness. There are no degrees of lostness. And this passage shows us um, several ways in which sin affects sinners. Here's how sin affects sinners. Here's the first way in which it shows us our legal standing before God. It affects our minds. It affects our motives. It affects our wills. One guy named John Stott he defines sin as this. He says sin is the revolt of the self against God, the dethronement of God with a view to the enthronement of oneself. It affects our wills. It affects our tongues. It affects our relationships. And it affects our relationship to God. So I want you to see the ways in which sin just ripples out into every aspect of our being, our hearts and our souls and our minds and, and our relationships. Sin is not just an activity or an action that you commit. It's a lot more than that. We've got to see our sin as going this deep if we're going to really find our identity in Christ and the gospel. This, at the heart of this issue is a concept that the church has defined as something called total depravity. And this is defined by a guy named J.I. Packer as this. He says, no one is as bad as he or she might be, but on the other hand, no action of ours is as good as it should be. None of us are as bad as we could be. You and I see unbelievers doing some good things, believers doing some good things. None of us are as bad as we could be, but also nothing is as good as it should be as well. This is total depravity. Um. I want you to look at this next quote by Tim Keller. He says, Someone might have an intellectual interest in the possibility of God or a philosophical conviction there is a God, but that is not a real passion to meet with God. In fact, both can be a way of avoiding God if we keep him in the realm of intellectual argument or philosophical construct. We can keep ourselves from having to deal with him objectively. You and I are never going to see a need to meet with God in this way if we don't truly understand our lostness before him. And I want to tell you a story of what happened to me when I was in in, uh, high school and also in college because um, I think I shared this a few years ago. You may have heard it before. I'll share it again, though. Um, I had a friend out in Arizona who was like a spiritual mentor to me. He was a few years beyond me. And I was a junior in high school, and I flew out to Phoenix, Arizona, to see him for spring break, See, see him and his wife for spring break, and, um, he and I are just driving in a car going somewhere and he's asking me questions. He loved to ask a really hard, deep questions. He said, so, um, Dave, you know, what, what do you think you want what do you think you want in a wife? And I'm 17. I'm like, I haven't thought about this that much, but I think I was like, I don't know, hot. Um, cause I was real deep back then, you know? And, uh, and I started thinking through, like, well, you know, I, I started getting into, like, well, I think I'd want her to be um, pure, like, having waited for marriage because that's what I plan on doing, and I, I really want to find someone who's got the same values with that. And I'm just speaking, and he just kind of slams on the brakes. He's like, wait, what? He goes, really? You think that? And I said, well, yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm doing that. I want to do that, so I want to find someone in the same mindset. And he goes, well, Dave, you know, like, you know my past, Dave. You know my Sorted history, right in that regard, so he goes, Well, um, do you realize that if my wife had had the same standard that you're saying you have, she never would have married me and I was like well that's that 's her, that's her choice though you know that's not what i 'm going to choose to do, and i'm just thinking it's no big deal, and he really let me have it like he just lit he just said you know he goes, he goes you're being like a Pharisee, and I was like well how how is this and and he began to explain to me, he's like, you, you can't, like, what if God just sets this girl free and God just redeems this one girl? Like, you're going to say no because of that one thing? And I was like, well, I, now that you say it like that, I don't know. <laughs> and so I'm starting to feel convicted. And then um, fast forward a few years, I get to college and move to Texas and um, meet this girl. And um, it wasn't Courtney, by the way, so don't be like, oh because this is, like, a previous deal, and and uh, that's my real, like, Valentine over there, so don't be getting ideas. So um, I made this girl, start dating this girl, and then, um and this is the first girlfriend I had that I was starting to go, you know what, this could be the girl. This might be the girl, so um, I want to make sure we stay totally, like, we don't go down the physical road at all, like, I'm not even going to kiss her, like, I'm just not going to even go, I want to respect her and, like, not even And I was trying to be real intentional about all these things, about how I was treating this relationship. And then about four months into the relationship, one night, she just seems real just kind of down. And she begins to tell me the story. and She begins to tell me, she's like, well, we've gotten pretty serious in our relationship. And she's thinking future things. I'm thinking future things. And she just says, I feel like I should tell you this, that um, when I was in high school for a couple of years, I was involved with this guy. And, um, and things turned physical for, like, two years with this guy. And I was living a lie. She said, I was living a lie. I was in a youth group, and I was, you know, praising Jesus, but also living this other lifestyle that no one else knew about. And I want to take a time out here because I, I want to just say real quickly that if you've struggled in this area of your life when it comes to sin, what I'm saying this morning, I don't mean to further shame you. My point in bringing this up is to show you my sin, to show you my stuff, to show you the junk that I deal with and have dealt with. So my point in saying this is not to shame you at all. It's to show you my own sin, my own struggle. And so she began to tell me her story, and, and I was just floored. I was just like, oh, man, God!" but God, like this is the relationship where I was trying to be so right about how we did it physically how we just kept everything pure and 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 yet this is the reward that I get God and for several weeks I was just like in this torment thinking like this could be the girl and now I got to make this decision and God walked me through all that and I felt like at this point in my life God began to show me what grace is God began to show me what real grace is and grace was no longer just an intellectual concept it was now had sunk down, the the rock had dropped into my soul and sent ripple effects out into my life. And this is what I would call the grace breakthrough, where I began to understand in a real way what grace really was. It was here God showed me what it was all about, and that all my righteousness up to that point had been for myself. And not to bring him glory, but to bring myself glory. And so here's what I think repentance looks like here's a quote by george whitfield he says you must not only be made sick of your sin but you must be sick of your righteousness all of your duties and performances there must be a deep conviction that you can be brought out of your self-righteousness it is the last idol taken out of your heart this is what i'm praying all of us here are going to get and i want to show you this video before we go to breakouts here in a second um I want to show you this video. I'm not playing this. This is a Donald Trump interview. And I'm not playing this because of some political statement. My goal was not to make a political statement. I'm trying to make a gospel statement. So go ahead and watch this video. Let's watch. So we've got people
1: lined up for questions. i just got one more because you used the word Christian. Have you ever asked God for forgiveness? That's a tough question. I I don't think in terms of, I have, I'm I'm a religious person. Shockingly, because people are so shocked when they find this out, Uh, I'm Protestant. I'm Presbyterian. And I go to church and I love God and I love my church. And Norman Vincent Peale, the great Norman Vincent Peale was my pastor. The power of positive thinking. Everybody's heard of Norman Vincent Peale. He was so great. He would give a sermon. You never wanted to leave. Sometimes we have sermons, and every once in a while we think about leaving a little early right, even though we 're Christian <laughs> Dr. Norman Vincent Peel Frank would give a survey, would give a sermon i 'm telling you I still remember his sermons. It was unbelievable, and what he would do is he 'd bring real life situations modern day situations into the sermon, and you could listen to him all day long when you left the church, you were disappointed that it was over. He was the greatest guy, and then you know, he passed away, but he was a great... The, the He wrote The Power of Positive Thinking, which is but, a great book. But have you ever asked God for forgiveness? <laughs> I'm not sure I have. I just go and try and do a better job from there. I don't think so. I think I, if, I, if I do something wrong, I think I just try and make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. I don't. Now, when I take, you know, when we go in church and, and when I... Drink my little wine, which is about the only wine I drink, and have my little cracker. I guess that's a form of asking for forgiveness. And I do that as often as possible because I feel cleansed, okay? But, uh, you know, to me, that's important. I do that. But in terms of officially, I should, see, I could say absolutely. And everybody, I don't think in terms of that.
0: The point I want you to get this morning as we go to our breakouts is repentance is not just about repenting from our bad works. We repent from our good works as well. And so when someone doesn't understand just the basic concept that you need forgiveness and you also need to not just repent from our bad works but also repent from finding your righteousness in your good works. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. Um, We're gonna go to our breakouts guys and uh, I've got uh, discussion sheets on the ping pong table. You guys can head that direction. Find your room. You guys know where to go, hopefully, and uh, leaders can guide them there. Let's go to our breakouts.